0: So a couple of things. Mary, who was sitting (laughs) back at lunchtime, I sent an email to get to the first jhana, generate access concentration, which is you're fully with the object of meditation. And if there are thoughts, they do not pull you into distraction. You know each in-breath and each out-breath if you're doing mindfulness of breathing. You can use metta or the body scan as well to get to access. Second jhana, when you're in first jhana and you've had enough, take a deep breath, really let the energy out, which will calm the PT, the physical component, and you focus on the emotional component, the sukha, the joy, happiness. The third jhana, dial down the intensity level of the sukha from joy, happiness to contentment. It may be helpful to take a deep breath, and then as you exhale, let the happiness turn into contentment. Uh, It might be helpful even to remember a time when you were very contented. Just eating the perfect meal. You didn't overeat. You don't have to wash the dishes. (laughs) So take the breath, start the exhale, Remember the contented feeling, quarter second memory, and now that happiness turns into the contentment that you just reminded yourself of. And your focus is on contentment. The fourth jhana, get in touch with the pleasure of the third jhana. The contentment is pleasant, right? And let the pleasant disappear. And when you do, hopefully there's a sense of things dropping down, and just go with the dropping down and follow it all the way till it comes to rest in a place of quiet stillness. So your first focus in the first jhana is on the Piti Sukha experience. In the second jhana, it's on Sukha with some background piti. In the third jhana, it's on the focus is on contentment, for the fourth jhana, the focus is on quiet stillness. Believe that gives you enough information to keep playing. first night when I talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I talked about how he left home, studied with his teacher, did the austerities. Finally woke up and then was very reluctant to teach. He said, this generation is addicted to their lifestyle. It's very difficult for people addicted to their lifestyle to understand this important thing. Dapataya cha padicca This, that, conditionality, dependent origination. So, for the next few nights, we're going to take a look at this important thing. When dependent origination is usually taught, what's taught are the 12 links of dependent origination. I would say that's a later development. There's an interesting little sutta in the sutta-nipata. Remember I talked about there being the fifth collection, the miscellaneous collection, and it had the sutta-nipata, which had the 75 or so suttas, and there were five books, and book four was material that the scholars think is very early. And I said the overriding theme is not holding to fixed views, but there's other things in there. And Sutta Nipata 4.11 is, in my opinion, the original Dependent Origination Sutta. It's entitled, Quarrels and Disputes. And someone asks, why are there quarrels and disputes? Upon what do quarrels and disputes arise? And the answer is, People find things endearing, which, of course, only raises the question, so why do people find things endearing? And the answer is, because they're desirable, Okay. So upon what does this desire arise? Why is there desire? It is said in this world, it is pleasant, it is not pleasant. From whence come the pleasant and the not pleasant? From sense contact. What does sense contact depend upon? Namarupa. rupa rupa is a very interesting word. Uh, usually, literally, name and form. Sometimes you see it as mentality and materiality, or mind and body. Uh, it appears that it doesn't have a really consistent meaning. different shades showing up over the course of the suttas. I've been playing with it as sort of a concept and manifestation. So, there's the concept of a bell, and a manifestation of one. So, when I say bell, you might not get that exact picture, that's the nama, then you don't have to say anything, You, you, you see the object, the form, the manifestation. So, concept and manifestation. Concept of a bell, just a concept. You don't even need one. In fact, I can tell you about two-sided triangles. Right? Do you know what color they are? Right? This is a ridiculous concept because <laughs> it's only a concept. It's not possible to have a manifestation. Or you might see something and not know what it is, and there is the manifestation, but you don't have a name for it. So nama rupa is a kind of a bit tricky thing. So what we've got is quarrels and disputes arise dependent on endearment, and endearing qualities arise due to desire, and desire arises dependent on pleasant and unpleasant. And pleasant and unpleasant arises dependent on sense contact, and sense <coughs> contact arises dependent on nama-rupa. Nama sort of makes sense, right? But most of these words are not the words you are familiar with if you're at all familiar with the twelve links of dependent origination. The twelve links in the reverse order, so-called, start with Dukkha. Usually given as old age, sickness, and death. That arises dependent on birth, which makes sense. I mean, (laughs) if you don't get born, you don't experience any Dukkha. Right? So birth is a necessary condition to experience Dukkha. And birth arises dependent on becoming. Uh, Mother Nature has this urge to become, in the spring the birds are doing it, the bees are doing it, right? So there's this urge to become, which leads to birth, which doesn't cause the dukkha, but is a necessary condition for the arising of the dukkha. And then becoming is said to arise dependent on clinging. Clinging arises dependent on craving. Craving arises dependent on Vedna. pleasant and unpleasant. Vedna arise dependent on sense contact. Sense contact arise dependent on the senses, five external and the internal sense of the mind. And the sense is a part of having a mind and body. So, rupa is, again, the word here, but it's more directly pointing to mind and body. And then mind and body is said to be dependent upon consciousness, and consciousness is said to be dependent upon mind and body, at least in some of the recensions of dependent origination. Now, if we take this kindling version, we sort of line it up against what we find in the Quarrels and Dispute version. Quarrels and Disputes, that's dukkha, right? I mean, did you ever be in a Quarrels and Dispute and you go, oh, this is blissful. <laughs> no, it's dukkha, right? So, a different example than old age, sickness, and death, but it's still dukkha. Right, and then in the 12 link version, we got birth and becoming. And then we have clinging. Whereas in the original version, we have quarrels and disputes arise dependent on endearing. Well, what do you cling to? <laughs> you cling to the things that are endearing, right? If you have a pair of old, worn-out socks that have holes in them, and somebody says, hey, can I have those socks? Sure. Right? They're not endearing. You're not clinging. Right? you've got your new thousand dollar iphone and it says oh can i have your phone here "Go way right so kind of similar so if we throw out the birth and becoming pretty similar it says clinging arises dependent on craving it says endearing arises dependent on desire well desire and craving are used synonymously throughout the sutta not always synonymously. Sometimes desire is, shall we say, less sticky than craving. Craving is always a problem. Desire, yeah, I wouldn't say it's always a problem, but it always has the potential to become a problem. And then craving arises dependent on vedna, whereas the desire is said to arise dependent on pleasant and unpleasant. That's pretty close to Vedna, right? Because Vedna is pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. And the Vedna arises dependent on sense contact, just like the pleasant and the unpleasant. And the sense contact is said to arise dependent on the six senses, which are rising dependent on Nama Rupa. And in the original version, sense contact is said to be rising dependent on Nama Rupa. So this early version seems to have a bit fewer steps in it. But actually, if we take the 10-link version and throw out all the ones that don't appear, what we have is that. Dukkha arises dependent on clinging, which arises dependent on craving, which arises dependent on Vedana, which arises dependent on sense contact, which arises dependent on Nama Rupa. That's somewhat easy to understand. This is about necessary conditions, it's not about cause. Nama Rupa doesn't cause sense contact, Vedana doesn't cause craving. Which is a good thing, because you're getting vedna every time you get a sense contact, and if every sense contact led to vedna, and every vedna led to craving, uh, you'd never get out of dukkha, <laughs> right? So, good thing it's not a <laughs> sufficient condition. So, where do these other bits and pieces come from, and what's that all about? I mean, it actually seems kind of weird. you got the 12 links of dependent origination, and it's like, all right, dukkha arises dependent on birth. Okay, you got the beginning and the end right there. You know, the beginning is birth, and the end is old age sickness and death. How come birth is right there? It doesn't quite make... And then birth, dependent on becoming, okay, that that makes sense. Becoming, dependent on clinging, right? Uh, That's a kind of weird one, unless you kind of, well, push the interpretation a bit. Then we got the stuff that makes sort of sense. The six senses are thrown in there, and yeah, it makes sense. So, really we've got a description of basically how we get into trouble, right? You have a mind and body, there are concepts and manifestations, and all this leads to sense contact. Sense contact inevitably is going to produce the vedna, and if you're not careful, that's going to turn into a craving, I want it, I and mean, clinging, I got it and I'm not going to let go of it. And that's going to lead to dukkha. So, this is really the essence of dependent origination. It just has got these other bits and pieces thrown in. And then it gets even more complicated than that because we have. Namarupa is dependent on consciousness, and consciousness is dependent on Nama Rupa. Right. Uh, right. So if we take Nama as mind and body, mind and body doesn't work unless it's conscious. If you have a mind and body, and it's not conscious, and it stays like that, yeah, it's going to die. Right. So it's dependent on consciousness. Yet consciousness arises dependent on mind and body. That's where it comes from. We don't find consciousness just wandering around independent of mind and body. Well, maybe in England, they have a lot of ghosts over there or something, but, you know, it's just usually not. But to make matters even more complex, others teachings so on dependent origination say that consciousness arises dependent on sankharas, things that are manufactured and manufactured things depend on ignorance. So now we've got this kind of a mess. Uh, Carolyn Reese Davids, who was one of the early translators from Pali to English, referred to dependent origination as a curious old room. Uh, and when people stop and really look at it, It's kind of a head-scratcher. The the initial thing with the quarrels and disputes and endearing and desirable and pleasant-unpleasant contact with Namarupa, yeah, makes some sort of sense. But then it got all this other complicated stuff thrown in. Where did that come from? And what's it all supposed to mean? Well, it appears that in the Vedic tradition, so the Vedas are the hymns, the teachings of Brahmanism. In the Vedic tradition, there is the Vedic hymn of creation. And the Vedic hymn of creation talks about how originally, there's just primordial ignorance. And then out of that springs the things that are created. And some of what's created is consciousness. And Consciousness animates mind and body, which has senses, and yet sense contacts, which produce Vedna, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, death. This is not Buddhism. Yet it appears that what happened was the Buddha teaches a fairly simple form of dependent origination using different words. And somebody, perhaps it was the Buddha, perhaps it was some of the later followers, decided to change the words. But keep the tune? No, keep the tune? All right, so there was the original dependent origination, and then it got expressed using the words from the Vedic hymn of creation. The Buddha quite frequently would take words from another religion. Change them up slightly to use in his teaching. We find words like asava, which the Jains were referring to as the influxes, and the Buddha's talking about them as the intoxicants, or the original meaning of the word. So it appears that the Buddha's disciples, the majority of them, came from. They didn't quite have caste back then, but. This came from the Brahmin caste to be. The division of the culture into Brahmins. And those were the majority of his followers. And they would know the Vedic hymn of creation. Right? And so instead of teaching him some different words, he taught him the words of the Vedic hymn of creation. But what happened was. The rest of the words got stuck in that didn't even really make a whole lot of sense. But that didn't stop Orthodox Buddhism from working with the 12 links. We find the 12 links uh, showing up in the Tibetan tradition as the wheel of life, or the wheel of dependent origination. This is a bunch of concentric circles. In the center, there's a rooster, a pig, and a snake, each biting the tail of the other. The rooster represents greed, the snake represents hatred, and the pig represents delusion. That's in the bullseye part. And around that, in that circle, We have people coming out of states of woe, beings coming out of states of woe into very nice states and then coming back down into states of woe, samsara. And around that, we have the part where the artist has the most fun, because that depicts the six realms of existence. Buddhist cosmology is quite elaborate. There are actually 31 realms of existence, but all the heavens get collapse down into heaven in this picture. At the bottom, you have the hell realms. There are, well, the usual things you find in hell. People <laughs> being boiled alive, being eaten alive, walking through a forest where their leaves are all swords. You know, the usual stuff. Stuff Dante would be proud of. <laughs> right? So that's the bottom. Then above that, you have the hungry ghost. The hungry ghosts are beings who are very greedy in a previous life, and now they have giant bellies and very tiny throats. They can never get enough. Also down at the lower levels, you have the Asuras. These are the warring gods that are always fighting. Uh, it appears they have their headquarters in a five-sided building just south of Washington, and then there's the animal realm. Okay, that's the one we're familiar with, with the bunny rabbits and the deer and all the little animals. Then we have the human realm, and that depicts people doing things like working and sleeping and eating and the usual human occupation. And then at the top are the, what is it, 26 heavenly realms all put into one picture, and that's. Davis sitting on plows, playing lutes, lutes instead of harps, and eating ambrosia, right? you know, all the stuff you usually do in heaven. Okay, But the important part is the outer ring. And that's where the 12 links of dependent origination are depicted. Up at the top, you have ignorance. The Ignorance is depicted as an old blind person making their way through the forest. And then, dependent on ignorance, you have Sankara Sankara is a very interesting term. It gets translated lots of different ways. Uh, It's often translated as karmic formations in dependent origination. But there's an agenda behind that translation that I don't think applies. Uh, It literally means making together. So it would be a Sankara is anything that's created. This table is a Sankara. The Declaration of Independence is a Sankara. Truth is a Sankara. Beauty is a Sankara. You're a Sankara. I'm a Sankara. Right? All the things of creation are Sankaras. The best translation would be either from Thanissaro biku, fabrications or from uh, Santikaro concoctions. Uh, both of those words have a sense of not quite true, you know, a lie is a fabrication, and a uh, concoction, you know, he came home really late last night, he concocted a story about having a flat tire, right? So, sankharas aren't quite true, right? They arise dependent on ignorance. We're ignoring, well, we'll get to what we're ignoring in a minute. Because we're ignoring what's really going on, we divvy the world up into all these objects, these sankaras, these things of creation, these fabrications, these concoctions. That's depicted as a potter sitting at a wheel making pots. And some are very nice, and some are misshapen, and some are broken. various kinds of fabrications. Dependent on Sankara is consciousness. Consciousness always has to have an object. There is no such thing as objectless consciousness in early Buddhism. This concept makes no sense at all. You're always conscious of something. right? So you're conscious of Well, the fabrications, the concoctions of the world, the Sankaras. Consciousness is depicted as a monkey swinging through the trees, grabbing first one branch and then the next. You might have encountered this monkey mind at some point in the recent past. (laughs) Dependent on consciousness is Namarupa, which is thought of as mind and body. It's depicted as two people in a boat, one is standing up and pulling the boat along. The other is laying prone and is long for the ride. This is actually an insight practice for you to do. Which one represents mind and which one represents body? Right? Who's directing where the boat goes? Right? You can tell me when you come to your interview. Right? Everybody's got an equal chance because we're going to have two more interviews. We're back to group one tomorrow. All right. And uh, dependent on mind and body are the six senses. That's depicted as a house with five windows and a door, the five external senses and the mind. Arising dependent on the senses is sense contact. And that's depicted as a couple embracing. Arising dependent on contact is Veydna. Veydna is depicted as a man having arrows shot into his eyes. unpleasant A Arising dependent on Veydna is craving. Craving is depicted as a person who's very fat, sitting at a table that's heavily laden with food. Arising dependent on craving is clinging. Clinging is depicted as someone picking fruit and putting it baskets that are already so full the new fruit simply rolls onto the ground. Arising dependent on clinging is becoming. Becoming is depicted as a pregnant woman. Arising dependent on becoming is birth. That's a woman with a newborn. And arising dependent on birth is old age, sickness, death, and all the rest of the dukkha. and that's depicted as a corpse. So if we look at the 12 links, what does it actually mean? Even though I'm saying the 12 links uh, are not the original version, how do we interpret the 12 links? Well, The orthodox interpretation is the three lifetime model. It depicts your previous life, your current life, and your next life. In your previous life, you were ignorant, and the sankharas you made are karmic formations. And you die from that life, and the karmic resultants determine who you are in this life, what kind of consciousness and mind and body you have. And of course, that consciousness and mind and body is going to have senses, they get sense contacts. They're going to produce Phaedna, and if you're not careful, there's going to be craving and clinging. And that's this life. And because you're clinging, clinging to being alive, when you die, you're going to come back. There's going to be becoming, and then you're going to get born in your future life, and there's going to be old age, sickness, and death in your future life. That's the orthodox interpretation. On a scale of one to a hundred, I rate the orthodox interpretation as being accurate all the way up to a score of zero. (laughs) There's not a single sutta that interprets the twelve lengths of dependent origination as multiple lifetimes. If we go back to the original, the Quarrels and Disputes Sutta, quarrels and Disputes arise dependent on endearing, arise dependent on desirable, arise dependent on pleasant and unpleasant, arise dependent on contact, arise dependent on nama rupa. Anything in there that you could possibly interpret as multiple lifetimes, there's just nothing. The people have their immortality projects, and that's the orthodox interpretation: is this three-lifetime model. It has some rather serious flaws. Often in the sutras we find two teachings. One one is that if you can uproot the ignorance. Then there's no sankhara with no sankhara, no consciousness, no consciousness, no nama rupa with no nama da no, 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 no birth, no old age, sickness, death, and all the rest of the dukkha. All right? So, the Buddha's teaching us to get rid of the ignorance. So what you need to do is uproot the ignorance from your previous life. Uh, Are you going to do that? You probably don't even remember your previous life, but even if you do, how are you possibly going to change your previous life and uproot the ignorance there so that you won't be dead in your next life? This just does not make any sense. I don't think the Buddha would make a logical flaw like that. In fact, the second teaching, the Buddha says that the Dhamma is visible here and now. He also says that one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination. One who sees dependent origination also sees the Dhamma, right? So if you can see dependent origination here and now, how are you going to see it in the previous life and the future life? It just doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, Buddhism was embedded in a culture that had Uh, a lot of reincarnation teachings in it. And we find reincarnation and Brahmanism and Hinduism creeping back into Buddhism repeatedly. And so I think that's what happened when they came up with the three lifetime model. There's a better interpretation of the 12 links, and it's the moment-to-moment interpretation. Perhaps the most Uh, detailed and interesting explanation of that is what comes from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the Thai forest monk from the last century. He gave a number of talks on dependent origination, and Santi Caro has collected them, and they've been published in a book called Under the Bodhi Tree, and it's by far the best book on dependent origination out there. It's quite good. Dr. Carl did a really good job and he had really good material to work with because Ajahn Buddhadasa was actually quite brilliant. What Ajahn Buddhadasa says is dependent origination isn't over three lifetimes, it's, well, moment to moment in the sense of every sense contact. So, you have a mind and body and you're conscious, right? Everybody's conscious. Alright, so we've got senses, they're going to get sense contacts. That's inevitably going to produce Vedna. And if you're not careful, it's going to produce craving, which can turn into claiming and lead to becoming, birth, and death. Now, if that's moment to moment, the birth isn't physical birth, obviously. What. Ajahn Dasa is saying is that the becoming is that you are becoming a self and then you give birth to your identity. But because this self that you have just generated is illusory, it has a tendency to, well, die. And so you've got to recreate it over and over again. I'll give you an example. We'll make it a little clearer. Let's say you've never had a mango. You go to the grocery store and you're in the pruner section, a mango. And you see a sign and it says mangoes. And you're like, oh, I've heard of mangoes. Those are supposed to be really nice. So you buy a mango. And let's say you get a nice ripe one. And you go home and you put all the groceries away. And then you attack the mango. And you figure out, I should probably peel it. You make a big mess because that's what happens the first time you attack a mango. Alright? And now, you've got a piece of mango. You're conscious, you have a mind and body, you got the senses. Sense contact. Vedna. Pleasant Vedna. Oh, very nice. More. Right. Yeah. This is good. I should get some more mangoes. In fact, my friends, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, they've never had mangoes. I'm going to turn them on to the mangoes. So you go back to the store, you get another mango, you go see your friends, and you turn them on to the mango, and they're like, oh, this is so cool, thank you for bringing mangoes. You have to become a mango bringer. (laughs) Every time you go see your friends, you bring a mango, right? at first they're all like oh cool the mango yeah and you're really now the mango bringer until about the seventh or eighth time and they're like what's with all the mangoes (laughs) Uh Oh, death of the mango bringer (coughs) so you're getting sensory contacts and by the craving and clinging you're generating a sense of who you are i am the one who wants this thing. I am the one who got this thing and now owns it. And you've given birth to yourself as the wanter and the owner of whatever it is. This is a much more useful way of looking at the origination. I still don't think it's exactly what the Buddha had in mind, because I think the whole birth becoming bit is the later insertion. I don't think that was there under the Buddha. I think it got stuck in later, and people wound up trying to interpret dependent origination around this little bit here that doesn't make any sense. Uh, I remember giving a talk in this room, first time I ever taught here, on dependent origination, and trying to make the connection between becoming Uh, between clinging and becoming. And one of the students pointed out very nicely that what I said didn't make any sense. (laughs) And I had to admit, it didn't really make any sense, because it doesn't make any sense. Because the becoming and the birth seems to have been inserted later. Looking at what the Buddha is trying to say, the dukkha that you experience arises dependent on your craving and clinging. And the craving and clinging sets in because you're experiencing pain now whenever you get a sense contact. And that sense contact is just part of having a mind and body. This is what the Buddha's pointing out. But he also points out you don't have to do the craving and clinging. This is third noble truth, right? First one, dukkha happens. Second one, dukkha arises dependent on craving. The third noble truth, if you don't want dukkha, don't crave. (laughs) Now the Buddha wouldn't say, don't crave, unless actually you could manage to pull that off. The way to getting to where you're not craving is enough insight into reality so that the tendency to crave doesn't happen anymore. This is what the Eightfold Path is about. These are the practices to undertake, such that the craving doesn't arise. You're still going to have a mind and body. You're still going to get sense contacts, and they're going to generate vaivna. That's it. You don't have to do any craving or clinging based on the vaivna. When you experience a pleasant vedna, you can actually enjoy it much more if you're not trying to figure out how to get it and keep it. You can keep anybody else from taking it away. Or, right? It's just a pleasant vedna. Enjoy. And when you get an unpleasant vedna, you just deal with the situation. Right? If there's something needs to be done, you do whatever needs to be done without getting all bent out of shape. And craving for it to go away and trying to figure out how you can keep it away in the future. So one way to break the chain of dependent origination with these links is to get your mindfulness in there between the Vedna and the craving. There's a gap. There's the pleasant Vedna and then there's the identifying what it is, and then there's all the thoughts and emotions that arise based on what you have identified. The Vedna is downstream a bit, and if you can get your mindfulness in there and be right right there with the pleasant Vedna, you can still identify what it is, but the downstream thoughts and emotions don't have to lead into craving or clinging. Okay, So this is why the second establishment of mindfulness is so important. Right? It's to be mindful of the Vajna so that you don't get caught in the craving and clinging. And if it's an unpleasant vagna, yeah, you don't have to crave for it to go away and cling to its absence. You can get your mindfulness in there, see that it's unpleasant, if there's something needs to be done, you just do what needs <coughs> to be done without getting all bent out of shape. So this is dependent origination. This is the links of dependent origination. Remember, there was another phrase there, the itapataya ca, the this, that conditionality dependent origination. So what I've laid out for you are examples of dependent origination. The this that conditionality is the general case, and basically it says that this arises dependent on that. If that doesn't happen, this doesn't happen lights arise dependent on the light switch being turned on. If you turn on the light switch, you don't have any lights. That's dependent origination. And it applies to a whole host of things. You see, at the time of the Buddha, they still hadn't quite figured out cause and effect working on it, but they had all sorts of ideas why things happen. Some teachers taught everything happens by chance. Some teachers <laughs> taught that it was Brahmins and recluses of great power who made things happen. Some teachers taught that it was the gods who made things happen. Yes, there's people still teaching that. And the Buddha comes along and he says, eh. <laughs> You're looking for the wrong information. You don't need to know why things happen. What you need to know is what the problem is. The problem is dukkha. You need to find a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha that you can turn off, that you can prevent. The necessary condition is craving. Get your mindfulness in there with the vedna so you don't fall into the craving. That's this, that conditionality. But it applies in many other broader senses as well. And we'll talk about those tomorrow night and the next night. So, any questions or comments on what we've talked about? I have a question about dukkha. heard it defined... Different ways here. One being old age, sickness, and death, which seem inevitable, and another being something like a bummer, which right. is said to be well supposed to be not inevitable. For us. Why are we doing any of this? Right. So, so how do we reconcile these two very different definitions? Yeah, the reconciliation of the different <laughs> definitions of old age, sickness, and death is Duka and dukkha is a bummer, is that old age, sickness, and death are dukkha if they bum you out. (laughs) And for most people, they get bummed out when they start thinking about their own old age, sickness, and death, or the old age, sickness, and death of people they care about. So old age, sickness, and death can trigger being bummed out. But I would say, I would put dukkha back at the point more accurately of being a bummer And I'll come up with an even different definition night after tomorrow, which may take it back a little bit further. So it's not that old age sickness and death in and of themselves are dukkha. It's your reaction to understanding or experiencing those that is dukkha. How would you differentiate um, craving from clinging? Craving is I wanted. In other words, I don't have it yet. And clinging is I've got it and I'm hanging on to it. Craving is focused on the object, and clinging is focused on the possessor of the object. So the those pair two pairs of distinctions is how I (laughs) distinguish it. and right, you mentioned that, um, I may not have the words coming out my right, but uh, uh, you don't think the incarnation is a reality? fact the that I'm going to be reborn. Okay. Did I get that part right? That was a valid <laughs> understanding of what I said, <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, my question <laughs> is, how do you resolve that with what you said on the first that on the uh, first thought to the night, the Buddha saw his all, all past, past life. life. Right. So I mentioned Stephen Bachelor's book, uh, After Buddhism. And I said in there, it's in chapter eleven, it's uh, section four, he spends about two pages talking <laughs> about the fact that with well, a Buddha in order to express the huge ramifications of karma. In a culture steeped in reincarnation, the way to drive the point home was to talk about it in terms of reincarnation. To talk about it, my personal karma, it, it goes back a long ways. And in a culture where reincarnation is big, a long ways would be multiple lifetimes. And it's general. It's not just my karma. It's everybody's karma. It's so pervasive in a culture where they're steeped in reincarnation to say that whatever actions you do, that's going to determine how you're going to be reincarnated the next time. And he's doing this to give the huge size and importance of karma in using the, the dominant paradigm of the day of reincarnation to get his point across. So this is what Stephen Batchelor says, There's, I think that's probably good, I can't, I can't vouch that it's actually what was going on, but I think it's very interesting speculation. There's another interesting thing, is that there are a number of suttas where it describes the night of awakening, and in the Pali, it always talks about the remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and we are rising according to their karma, and then the Four Noble Truths in the Three Watches of the Night. Now, the Pali suttas are not the only versions of these suttas. There was a third council. It was held during the time of King Ashoka. And that's about 150 years after the Buddha's death. And you might have heard of King Ashoka. He was probably more responsible for Buddhism existing today than anyone other than the Buddha, right? He sent out missionaries, missionaries. He sent out monks to take the dharma throughout his realm into neighboring countries. He sent his son, Mahinda, to Sri Lanka. And Mahinda took the suttas with him. Now, he didn't take the suttas with him in his backpack or his suitcase. (coughs) He took monks with him who had memorized the suttas, right? Because that's still no way you could transport it. Right, so, he had a group of monks go with him, and what they took down there eventually got written down in the Pali language using the Sri Lankan script, the Sinhalese alphabet. And that was preserved, and then the British came along and translated it into English, and that's what we have as the Pali Sutras. But it also went to Kashmir, And in Kashmir, they didn't speak Pali, but they knew Sanskrit. So they translated the Pali into Sanskrit. This was the Sevastavadan sect of Buddhism. The Sevastavadan was the largest sect of Buddhism at that time. It was Mahayana Buddhism beginning, and of the non-Mahayana Buddhism, Sevastavadan was probably the majority. They were the ones that spread into Afghanistan and built the tall statues that the Taliban blew up a decade ago. But their suttas went around the end of the Himalayas into China. And we have the Chinese versions of the suttas. And it's not identical, but it's pretty similar. Of the 152 suttas in the Middle Link discourses, 140 of them show up in the Chinese. Not identical, but easy enough to say, oh yeah, this is the same sutta. There's a little tweaks and whatnot here and there that make them different. One of the tweaks is that in the Chinese versions of the Night of Awakening, there are multiple times where remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re according to their karma don't appear. So the question arises were those later insertions that there are other places in the sutta where the buddha says that the night of his enlightenment he spe- spent contemplating dependent origination you can find that in the samyutta nikaya book 12 sutta 65 entitled the city so yeah why do we wind up with this stuff in there well it may have been skillful means to drive home the point, and they had not been in there originally, that you know, we don't really know. Uh, clearly, we don't have any direct evidence of what was going on the night of the awakening, except that the Buddha woke up. He had a transformation that enabled him to teach other people how to wake up and escape from dukkha. But exactly what happened? more than likely he was meditating, and since the word for meditation at that time was jhana, he probably was doing jhana practice. And since the first thing he says is, it's hard for people addicted to their lifestyle to understand this important thing, this that conditionality dependent origination, he probably was working on dependent origination that night. And beyond that, well, we don't know. That's probably a very long and not definitive <laughs> answer to your question. <laughs> so but, very helpful. Okay, but that's the best I can do. I was told that um, you know one of the geniuses uh Buddhas was this. he tailor his lectures to his audience and exactly. it means and Master Shengyan does practicing uh john master and would say something that when you're on a pirate ship be a pirate right yeah very definitely if you want to understand the sutta it's extremely important to know to whom the buddha was speaking because he would say different things to a Jain, that he would say to an ajivaka that he would say to a lay person and he would say to one of his followers and so his teachings were very much tailored to the audience. And so, yeah, it could well be that. So when I told you that he remembered past lives and saw beings passing away or re-arising according to their karma, that comes from Majjama 36, which is given to someone who's very skeptical about what the Buddha's up to who's actually seeking to trip the Buddha up, right? So maybe the Buddha put that in there just to, you know, work with this guy. Whereas the part about it's difficult for people addicted to their lifestyle to see dependent origination, that comes from Majjama 26, right? So I combine the two. <coughs> I find the two combined in Majjama 85 and Majjama 100, so I'm not cheating here. but. Uh, those are obviously later suttas that were put together, <laughs> and so just like I put them together. And it makes a pretty good story. <laughs> so, but yeah, what's going on, yeah, a little hard to tell. Um, I may take into account that uh, Buddha was not teaching metaphysics, but right. how to live uh, this life in uh, a uh, more pragmatic and meaningful way. Doesn't this? Questions about past lives and all that type of stuff get filtered out anyway? Yeah. Yeah, it's very important, as you say, to remember the Buddha wasn't doing metaphysics. He was a phenomenologist. He said, pay attention to the phenomena and understand them. Right? So he wasn't describing how the world works or anything like that. So all of the stuff about how the world works, yeah, it's either skillful means trying to help people. Come to terms with what he's teaching so they can start practice, or later editions. And really it's about when you read the suttas, the most important thing is to read and understand what he's telling you to do. And go do that. And don't worry about the seeming metaphysical bits, the cosmological bits, and so forth. I sometimes wonder if, if rebirth wasn't true at all, then the whole eight, <clears throat> the whole eightfold path would be and all the teachings would be kind of redundant, because all you need to do is wait till you die, and you die, and that's it, the end of Dukkha. You wouldn't have to invest so much, you just have to be patient and wait till the end of your life. (laughs) But between now and when you die, you're gonna be subject to Dukkha. You're gonna be subject to old age, sickness and death. All right, so how are you gonna come to terms with that? Remember, the Buddha was seeking some way to come to terms with elevate, sickness, and death. So, he's basically saying, yes, you can get out of dukkha by doing something other than just dying. All right? And so he's giving you instructions on how to do that. Basically, don't get caught in craving and cleaning. So, it doesn't really nullify the Eightfold Path. It just moves the good results earlier. Their questions. We can you talk a little about uh, the Buddha's response to questions about realism versus eternalism? Night after tomorrow. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's. I think that's when it'll come in. and I'll have a bigger context so it'll make more sense. So, he said that the Buddha already studied the jhanas with the jhanas master, but he wasn't satisfied. So it was the dependent origination that that was missing. Yes. That's what it seems to be. The, The jhanas just got him concentrated, but didn't solve the problem. But by contemplating dependent origination, he saw, yeah, the breakthrough, don't do the craving. And he saw it clearly enough that he didn't do the craving anymore, and therefore he was free of doing. Because I thought the jhanas already had a lot of teachings in it, like anicca or you no know, self or whatever. But it it lacked the the link or the dependent on There's more that needs to be understood than you can get from examining the jhanas. There is impermanence in the jhanas, Anicca. There's dukkha when it doesn't happen, right? You want that jhana and it's not coming and you got dukkha because you're craving, right? And there's not self in the sense that when you get the jhana going really well and you come out, there's not so much the selfing going on. We've talked about that. But it that doesn't seem to be sufficient. That it, it really is necessary in order to escape to get an even deeper understanding. Our problem isn't that the jhanas are impermanent. Our problem isn't that sometimes you can't get to the jhanas. Our problem isn't that, yeah, the self disappears when I get to the jhanas. The problem is old age, sickness, and death. So the insights you get from carefully investigating the jhanas are just not sufficient. And so the Buddha took it to the, a much deeper level mm-hmm. than the original. Anything else. So is that the only thing? So Jhanas and dependent origination equals enlightenment. more or less. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you fully understand dependent origination, you probably are fully awakened. Yes. Alright. So been practicing this stuff for thirty four years now? and definitely dependent origination has been the most useful thing the most lightning thing the the richest vein that i have mined the whole time i've learned more from working with dependent origination than from any other topic okay and i keep learning more and more stuff so i don't think i've got it all yet especially since sometimes i still experience dukkha. Right? So there's more to be learned there. And so when the Buddha says, one who sees the Dhamma sees dependent origination, one who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, getting the complete Dhamma would be fully awakened, and the complete Dhamma is the same as completely understanding dependent origination. Yeah. That's what's there. But there are going to be other things that are helpful along the way, such as getting a deeper understanding of impermanence, Getting a deeper understanding of dukkha, getting a deeper understanding of not-self. We will talk about impermanence and not-self as well in this course. And we already talked about dukkha, and we'll talk about it again. Okay, we'll take a short break and then do method. Please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. (coughs) Look into your heart and you will find the sun shining very brightly there. A sun that warms you with its rays and fills you completely with light. Now think of someone that you're close to and let the sun in your heart shine on that person and completely fill them with the warmth and light of the sun in your heart. Think of other people you're close to. Bring them to mind one by one and fill each of them with the beautiful warming rays from the sun in your heart. Think of your acquaintances, bring them to mind one by one and fill each of them with the light from the sun in your heart. Think of someone you find difficult, and let the sun in your heart shine on this person as well. Let the sun in your heart shine on everyone in this room. one here at Oakwood. It's a brightly shining sun. Let it shine on the animals in the woods and all the neighbors around here. Keep opening your heart so that the sun in your heart can shine on everyone in the Midwest. And then everyone in North America. Open your heart so wide that the sun there can shine on everybody on this planet. All the living beings, humans, animals, forests, fields. Let the sun in your heart shine on all of them, just like the sun shines on everyone on this planet. Put your attention back on yourself. And notice, as the sun in your heart shines over the whole world, the first thing it does is fill you. May all beings everywhere be happy.